Hello, and welcome to the Low Tech Podcast. I'm Scott Johnson from the Low Technology Institute, your host for podcast number 34 on February 9th, 2018, coming to you out of the Low Tech Recording Room in Cooksville, Wisconsin. Hey, thanks for joining us. Today we'll be discussing the concept of energy slaves. No, that's not when you get sucked into your smartphone. It's all the slaves we have working for us to make our lives easier. Well, at least for today. We'll also have our regular weekly news roundup and institute updates. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at low underscore techno. Like us on Facebook, find us on Instagram, and check out our website, lowtechinstitute.org. There you can find both of our podcasts, as well as information about joining and supporting the Institute and its research. When you hear the term energy slaves, you're probably thinking that I mean we are slaves to fossil fuels, electricity, and so forth. And while this may be true to a greater or lesser degree, depending on the person and the community, it's not the original meaning of this term, but we'll get to what it does mean in a minute. First, let's start with a provocative thought. Here I'm reading from Jean-Francois Mobot's article in Solutions Journal, entitled Thomas Jefferson and I, and this article is linked in the show notes. Quote, In the eyes of many, Thomas Jefferson embodies the contradictions of the young American republic. The principal writer of the Declaration of Independence was a man deeply committed to the democratic and equalitarian ideals of the Enlightenment, and who professed to hate slavery. Yet, he was at the same time one of the largest slaveholders of Virginia, and emancipated very few of his own slaves. Most people, and indeed most historians, find these apparent contradictions extremely puzzling. I don't. I don't because I very much identify with the paradoxes and dilemmas Jefferson must have felt during his lifetime regarding slavery. Like him, I am a large slaveholder. Like him, I consider the idea of owning slaves to be abhorrent, but feel as though I cannot really do without them. Like him, I fear that without these slaves in my world, indeed our entire civilization, would collapse. I sympathize with his feelings that slavery was like, quote, holding a wolf by the ears, end quote. We cannot hold it, but we cannot let it go either. Like him, I feel that these slaves have a corrupting influence on me and on society in general. Like him, I believe that it's a great evil to own these slaves, but since society around me finds this largely acceptable, I carry on. Like him, I love books and the life of the intellect, and feel that if I had to do all the chores that are necessary to sustain my everyday life, I would be left with no time to read and write these books. Like him, I like the comfort slaves bring to me. Like him, I consider myself a decent person. I've never broken up any slave families, nor whipped anyone. This is because my slaves, unlike his, are, mostly, not human beings. They are energy slaves, a term coined by Buckminster Fuller in the 1940s to designate modern machines that perform the same services slaves and servants used to provide for their owners. End quote. So that again was reading from Jean-Francois Mahmoud's article in Solutions Journal entitled Thomas Jefferson and I. So the term slavery is a loaded one and comes with considerable baggage in the United States. In fact, as we'll see, many scholars link the advent of the industrial age powered by fossil fuels as one of the things that helped with emancipation. By using this stored energy, we no longer had to hold humans in bondage. The term energy slave isn't meant to link itself to African slavery in the United States specifically or any other enslaved group at any point in history, but it is meant to be evocative and uncomfortable for those that make use of their bonded servitude. It should also be pointed out that about 30 million people find themselves in slavery or slavery-like conditions across the world today, and it's not lost on many people talking about this idea 
that the cheap transportation provided by fossil fuels allows this to take place. Because we don't see the people, for example, sewing our t-shirts, we don't know that many of them are being forced to work in terrible conditions. That distance is only made possible because of fossil fuels. With that out of the way, let's dig into this idea a little bit. On the 1940 cover of Fortune magazine, R. Buckminster Fuller, Bucky to his friends, well, maybe I don't know that, but I like to think that, uh, coined the phrase, energy slaves. The cover has a map of the world as seen from somewhere over the northern and western hemispheres. Little red and white lights seem to twinkle out across the landscape, much in the way that a modern satellite would show what cities are the brightest at night. In North America, the red dots outnumber the white dots, and in Southeast Asia, the reverse is true. The long caption on the cover reads, quote, Mechanization, the harnessing of energy, is man's answer to slavery. Man, whose population totals about 2.125 billion, now possesses the equivalent of some 36.85 billion inanimate energy slaves. Their number is estimated by dividing the total energy consumed by industrial man from mineral sources and water power by the energy output of one human per year. Each white dot on the map represents 1% of the human population, and the dots are located at centers of population. Each red dot represents 1% of the inanimate slaves located at focal centers of consumption. Each red dot represents about 17 times the effective power developed muscularly by a white dot. The U.S. has 54% of the energy slaves, an army of 20 billion. The faint blue line north of the equator is an isothermic line representing the zone of 32 degrees Fahrenheit mean low. While all industrial Europe lies to the south of this thermal zone, the heart of U.S. industrialism lies just to the north of it. History has made a clockwise spiral of civilization from east to west and northward. End quote. That's all it is. The idea that we have shirked our loads off of our shoulders onto machines run by external energy, primarily fossil fuels, along with some nuclear and hydropower, although note that nuclear wasn't even around at the time Bucky came up with this idea. According to a really wonderful graphic depiction of this idea, drawn by Stuart McMillan, basically a comic book-like illustrated guide to this concept you can find on the eponymous site stuartmcmillan.com, which is linked in the show notes, Bucky was sitting in traffic, thinking about how many horses would be around him to stand in for the thousands of horsepower embodied in all the cars. This seemed like quite a waste of energy just sitting in traffic. Since people were less intimately familiar with horses and their power, Fuller decided to look at how much power a person could generate. You could call it human power. Previous research by armies had calculated that a fit man could put out about 2,000 kilojoules of energy each workday. So for those of you who can't picture how much work that is, it's about 550 watt hours or enough to power a 60 watt light bulb for just over nine hours. I'll say that again. The entire energy of a fit male can produce in a day of work just enough power for a 60 watt light bulb to burn through the night. Not only does that make me think about how efficient we are at using energy, since I can shovel and move about six tons of soil in a day, and I found this out while digging our Wallapini greenhouse, but also how much energy is embodied in our fossil fuels and electricity. A typical house uses 30 kilowatts of hours per day. That's as much as 54 fit men working all day could generate, just to power a typical home. Let's call the amount of work a person can do in an hour, a person hour of work, or about 70 watts. A typical gallon of gasoline holds about 33.41 kilowatts of energy, about what a typical American home uses each day. 
that's equivalent to about 477 person hours. So when you're in your kitchen cooking, look out your back window and think of nearly 60 people on stationary bicycles in your backyard, pedaling furiously for eight hours just to power your home each day. If you're driving your car at 65 miles per hour and getting 32 miles per gallon in one hour of driving, you've used about a thousand person hours of energy. The comic does a good job of illustrating what this would look like if each car on the highway had a thousand people behind it pushing. You might be saying, well, good. All that embodied energy is better to come from an inanimate object like fossil fuels than a person or even an animal. This energy allows us to do with much less human slavery in the world. And this is true on some level, uh, but if we look at two facts, this negates and outweighs these positives. And also, it's not a one or the other sort of thing. We don't have to have either energy slaves or human slaves. We could have no slaves, which would probably be the right way to go. But back to the counterarguments. First of all, every day we burn about 14,000 years worth of stored carbon which is to say that we're working through a technically renewable resource because, you know, it's possible that we could make more oil. It just takes a long time. So it's a technically renewable resource, but we're using it at an unsustainable rate. Let's say you're a billionaire and you're earning a dollar a day, but you're spending $14,000 per day. Even if you're a rich person, you would spend down all of your money and it's basically the same with our fossil fuels. Yes, we do have fossil fuel deposits, but we burn them down a lot faster than we build them up. We're burning through fossil fuels at a rate of about 5 million to 1. That is, every day when we burn fossil fuels at current consumption, we're burning about 5 million days or 14,000 years worth of stored carbon energy. Next, our slaves breathe out carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases in such abundance that they're altering the global climate. Yes, energy slaves are just like us, burning up energy and releasing carbon through our exhaust or mouths. Mechanization and industrialization were supposed to give us more leisure time. Indeed, the British government was worried about how lazy the poor would become if all the hard work was done by machines. Luckily, we invented consumerism. Because energy and therefore labor become so ubiquitous, we could invent and produce more goods for sale at below rate prices because we don't really pay for all the embodied energy put into these products. Plus, by building an economy on what is essentially an insatiable consumption habit, we can produce what amounts to an unlimited amount of jobs. Look at it this way. If you're farming a field, you can only harvest as much grain as there is. If you're working in an office, a manager can always find more work for you to do. Most products don't go bad, so you can always produce more of them. Service sector hours can expand infinitely, and we have so many service sector jobs because, you guessed it, we have energy slaves doing the heavy lifting. During abolition efforts, it has been argued that owning slaves has a morally corrupting influence. This was to appeal to the self-interest of the slave owner who assumedly didn't have enough morality to question owning human beings. He should at least be interested in himself, right? Many who talk about energy slaves also mention the fact that it has a problematic effect on ourselves. I'm sure we can all think of things we'd rather not give up in our comfortable lives easy and cheap transportation, prepared foods, seasonal foods all year, warm houses in the winter, and so on. These things aren't considered morally corrupt today, but it will be interesting to see how people in two generations think about us using fossil fuels so exuberantly. For example, I love asparagus, but flying it in from South America on a jet plane because it has very limited shelf life doesn't necessarily seem like the greatest use of this resource we have.
This concept of energy slaves has become the most useful way for me to conceptualize how much energy I am using around the house, garden, and elsewhere. It's simple to convert a gallon of gasoline or watts into human power equivalents. Every time I do, I'm kind of shocked at the results. The only thing that was surprisingly light on resources was a smartphone, which could be charged 30 times or so with one person hour of work. That's pretty good. Everything else is surprisingly energy intensive. For example, we have a small uh, heating pad in with the chickens because it gets below zero here. That heating pad runs on about 60 watts, meaning that would take three energy slaves working eight hour shifts around the clock to power that thing, which, I mean, that, that's kind of ridiculous when you think about it. And that's just a small, tiny heating pad we have in the chicken coop. I don't use a desktop computer anymore because that uses about four times the amount of power as a laptop. If I have the choice between doing something by hand or doing something with a machine in the garden, I like to do it by hand not only for the fossil fuel consumption aspect of it, but also because I, I enjoy the work and it makes me feel good to get out of the office and do a little physical labor. You can check out one video that illustrates this on YouTube. I'll link to it in the show notes. It's a video showing an Olympic track cyclist attempting to power a generator hooked up to a toaster. This guy has thighs as big around as my torso, and that's not an exaggeration. He can barely toast a piece of bread, leaving you with the impression that it really does take a lot of power to do the things we take for granted. So I'll leave you with this thought, in addition to the links for further reading on the show notes. We're living a comfortable life. Even though there's plenty of suffering out there, I don't mean to minimize that, we haven't seen food riots, we haven't seen other system-wide life and death problems endemic to most other societies in history. I'm an archaeologist. I look back 5,000 years when I'm talking about history of large-scale complex societies, and many of the revolutions or collapses that we see are due to food or other resources running out. That's probably something we should keep in mind as we continue on uh, making choices about our infrastructure. Our entire system is built on the backs of energy slaves, which has been working well for us so far, but it will be a major change when the power begins to become harder to obtain and our slaves essentially disappear. It's best to change habits now, when things are relatively abundant, rather than wait for the change to happen to us. Some of the resources I used to compile this episode was the blog, uh, Energy Skeptic, which has a page devoted to summarizing different takes on the energy slave idea. You can also listen to a great podcast called The Extra Environmentalist. Episode 76 has a discussion with Andre uh, Nikifork, who wrote the book Energy of Slaves, Oil, and the New Servitude, and both are worth checking out. And again, go to Stuart McMillan's page to find the Energy Slaves comic that is a really nice visual illustration of this concept. All of these, of course, are linked in the show notes. And now let's turn to this week in low-tech news. The GIST had an article called The Devil's Bargain, describing what would happen if we stopped all emissions tomorrow. Apropos of talking about getting off of fossil fuels, it's not quite as easy as... <laughs> easy as just shutting down all production. We would actually have some pretty nasty repercussions because global temperatures would rise between a half and a full degree centigrade in a really short amount of time. The reason is that all the pollution in the air puts aerosols up into the atmosphere. Aerosols are 
airborne small particulates. Think of a very fine mist uh, or fog. This, this blanket of aerosols bounces sunlight and heat back into space. The problem is these emissions are also causing the global temperatures to rise slowly anyway. Some politicians think that geoengineering, that is emitting lots of aerosols, could curb global warming without cutting back emissions. The problem is that many of these aerosols are chemicals that we shouldn't be breathing. The article concludes suggesting that we're kind of damned if we do and damned if we don't. We have uh, trouble if we stop using the fossil fuels immediately. We also have trouble when we do not stop using them. Another article in Treehugger reminded me of my archaeological training. Examine your trash. Archaeologists deal with ancient trash, but going through what you throw away today can point you towards some places to improve on your financial and carbon budget. If you're throwing away food, you're just throwing away money and nutrients. So make sure you're eating what you have and composting what you can. Do you have a lot of unrecyclable stuff? Maybe there's a way to buy a different version of that product to reduce your waste. For example, if you're buying brand name cereal that comes in a cardboard box and a plastic bag, maybe consider buying just the generic that comes in just the plastic bag. Or better yet, find somewhere that sells bulk cereal and bring your own container. Tons of clothes are discarded each year because of the fast fashion mindset, something worth considering as well, and something I cover in podcast number 32 on minimalism and tidying up. Often we think about changing our habits by looking at the front end, that is, what we're actively choosing to do, where we buy things, what we buy, how we interact with things around us. While this article suggests that we can also get a lot of information from the back end or the outward flow of things from our lives. And this can give us valuable feedback for ways to improve. These are some of the stories we're following in Low Tech News. To see links to the stories we discuss, send us a news tip and more, visit the Low Tech website, lowtechinstitute.org, or follow the link in our podcast profile. And now for a brief recap of research we have going on around the Institute. We've got workshops coming up. We still have a little space in our knife sharpening workshop on the 18th, and we've also announced a flint napping class on the 24th of February. Both are held here at the Institute. Check out our website for details on both of these classes. And next week, you'll see an announcement for our maple sugaring class that will happen at the beginning of March. So stay tuned for that as well. We've also been making seed orders and getting ready for this coming spring. The garden plans and other things will be outlined on the blog in the coming weeks. One thing I hope to spend a lot of time talking about this year is one hour a day gardening. I grow a lot of our food, and many people, when they see our garden for the first time, say, wow, this is so much space to take care of. This is so much work. How do you have time to do all of this? And my goal is to show how much you can actually do if you only work at it one hour a day through the entire season. So that's my goal, one hour a day gardening to see how much food we can actually grow and store, but I'll talk a lot more about that in the coming growing season. We've also been out around our neighborhood spreading word about the tool library, a resource where folks can come by and borrow tools for free. That's it for this week. The Low Tech Podcast is put out by the Low Technology Institute. At the moment, the show is hosted, edited, and distributed by me, Scott Johnson. This episode was recorded at the Low Technology Recording Room, our intro music was Airship, off the album Songs for an Unmade World by Visigur. That song is under the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike License, and this podcast is under the Creative Commons Attribution and Sharealike Licenses, meaning you're free to use and share it as long as you give us credit. Subscribe to the, podca- subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or TuneIn Radio. And if you enjoy this free podcast, please help repay us by sharing it with a friend. 
The Low Technology Institute is a 501c3 research organization supported by members, grants, and underwriting. You can find out more information about the Low Technology Institute, membership, and underwriting at lowtechinstitute.org. Find us on social media and reach me directly, scott at lowtechinstitute.org. Thanks and take care.